Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 23, verses 37 to 24, verse 14, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Christ's Agenda. The way Albert Schweitzer told the story of Jesus was that Jesus failed. When Jesus realized that Israel would not accept his ministry, Schweitzer said he resolutely set his face to Jerusalem to die. Now, mind you, Schweitzer wasn't there, was he? And how would he know? I mean, all he had was the things that we have, the eyewitness accounts of those who had been there. And they tell a different story than Schweitzer. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die. That much is true. And furthermore, his death would be a propitiation. That is, he would be our sin substitute and open a doorway to the Father through faith in what he accomplished on the cross. But in that last week of Jesus' life, he was also looking beyond the cross well into the future. For his agenda was most surely the cross followed by the resurrection, but it was also an agenda that took him to the very end of the age. And it's this agenda that Jesus took some time to explain to his disciples. For us who read this today, this passage tells us what Jesus had been up to in the last 2,000 years. And so as we move into what has been called the Olivet Discourse, well, listen up. You'll learn a great deal about Jesus' agenda in the world until the end of the age. We begin back in chapter 23 of Matthew. Jesus has just utterly and completely rebuked and denounced the Pharisees. Their entire ministry is a fraud, and he exposed them. And before Jesus leaves the city of Jerusalem on that Tuesday afternoon and goes back to Bethany for the night, he has words to say about the city. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, Jerusalem is a conundrum. On the one hand, Psalm 135, 21 says, blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Ha, Jerusalem is the city of God. And furthermore, in the future, Jesus will reign the world from Jerusalem. It is the city of the great king, but it's also the city where God's prophets were put to death. It is a city of great wickedness. And for our purposes here, the key phrase will be the one in verse 38. See, your house is left to you desolate. And I'm going to say that the desolate house is not the city of Jerusalem, although Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. But the desolate house is the temple in Jerusalem, which would be destroyed. And that gives rise to the next two chapters in which Jesus gives us a panoramic view of the future. But the day is getting late, and it's time to go back to Bethany, where he's staying. So let's then read the next chapter, chapter 24, verses 1 to 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? As both Luke and Mark mentioned this story, they tell us that the disciples were remarking about the beauty of the stones. 
viewing the temple from the Mount of Olives, which is on the other side of the Kidron Valley, well, it really was a beautiful sight. You have to wonder at this point what the disciples were thinking. I mean, haven't they been listening to Jesus at all? I mean, yesterday he had cursed the fig tree, and today, as he was leaving the city, just moments ago, he was saying, this house is going to be left desolate. Well, all that went straight over the disciples' heads, and here they are, from their vantage point, overwhelmed with the beauty of the temple. And so it's time for Jesus to speak clearly and as plainly as possible. Are you admiring these things? Look, not one stone will be left on another. This house, this building, this place that serves as the center of worldwide Judaism, it's going to be utterly and completely destroyed. Now, as we read this, we have the advantage of history. Jesus uttered these words in the spring of 33, and by AD 70, the Roman army under its commander, Titus, completely destroyed Jerusalem and its temple. Jesus, as the Son of God, sees clearly what God has planned for his temple. Don't be so enamored, he says, with the things that are soon to be no more. What's fascinating to me is that this temple had never been completely finished. Herod the Great had started the project. They're still working on it in Jesus' day. I think it's an apt word for all of us today. I mean, so many of us are unprepared for the great plans of God. We're wrapped up in our own plans, and we weep at the thought that our plans are going to come to an end and will soon be no more. We long for the continuation of human plans, and we sometimes fear the coming of the plans of God. But the point here is that we must cease to look with longing eyes at this world and start reserving the longing heart for the plans of God. Now, when Jesus said that not one stone would be left on another, his disciples immediately assumed he was speaking about the end of the age. And that's exactly what the disciples understood Jesus to be saying. Jesus, they say, if you're talking about the destruction of this temple, at least, this is how they think, you must be talking about the end of the world. So verse 3, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they sit down on the Mount of Olives and they want Jesus to teach them. Tell us when the temple will be destroyed. Are we talking about something that is soon to occur? Are these well off into the future? I know that this matter of trying to get a handle on how far we are on the prophetic timetable, well, it's a matter of great interest to great many Christians. Prophecy conferences often argue we're very close now, and they may be right. The coming of our Lord may well be within our lifetime, but we don't know, and Jesus makes that abundantly clear. I think we need to repeat the words of Jesus from Matthew 25, verse 13, more frequently. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And here's a little secret. In the Greek, Matthew 25, 13, it means, well, you know neither the day nor the hour. You don't know. So all the guessing is only going to make you look foolish. How much more plain could Jesus have been? Now, the disciples are sitting on the Mount of Olives. They say, teach us, Master. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? here's a fascinating observation. The phrase, the end of the age, is used six times in the New Testament. And five of those occurrences are found in the book of Matthew. That phrase always refers to the collapse of the present era. It's followed by final judgment. Could you tell us, say the disciples, what is the sign that this time period, when this present world collapses, is upon us? So Matthew 24, or the Olivet Discourse, is Jesus teaching the twelve. If, as he has taught them, the temple is about to be destroyed, then what is the sign of your coming, the end of the age? So let's examine Jesus' teaching on this matter. So here I'm reading Matthew 24, verses 4 to 14. And Jesus answered them, 
See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains, and they will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. You know, whenever we read a text of Scripture, it's both necessary to examine closely what it actually does say, and then at the very same time also to notice what it does not say. And so let me begin by noticing what this text does not say. Are you ready? This text does not say that just before the end, there are going to be more wars than before, and more earthquakes than we've ever had before, and more persecution. Notice there's no indication in the text of an increasing intensity of anything. Indeed, if this text teaches anything at all, it teaches us that Jesus is telling his disciples that the end is still a ways away. Things are going to go on as they always have. When has there ever been a time when wars have not consumed the human race? How about famines? Have they ever gone away? We read about famines in the book of Genesis, and we continue to hear about them until the very close of the age. How about earthquakes? Yeah, there have always been earthquakes and more. Jesus is telling his disciples that things are going to go on as they always have. Well, what does that tell us about the end of the age? Well, hang on, I've got more to say. Everyone has a story. We all come from a beginning and an end. And while it may go largely unnoticed by the world around us, God knows our story and he invites us to unite our story with his. The story of Jesus is not simply something we read. It's a drama which invites preparation and participation. We participate by faith and obedience. So thank you for your prayers and financial support that you offer this ministry. Back to the Bible Canada is committed to telling the whole story of God with consistent, clear teaching of the Bible. Your support ensures the truths of God's Word are taught daily. We ask you to consider a gift to support Bible teaching this month, perhaps for the first time or by becoming a monthly partner. To give a gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. You know, Jesus must be doing more than simply telling his disciples things are always going to be as they always were. So what does he actually say? Look at what we've just read at face value, and you'll notice that before the end comes, as we've said, things like wars, famines, and earthquakes simply keep happening. But you might also have noticed that Jesus uses an image, and it's found there in verse 8. He says, these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Let me see if I can explain that. 
All women who have given birth to children will understand this image quite well. And might I add all husbands who've stood beside their wives while they understand it as well. There are the beginning of birth pangs, pangs that might not mean the process of birth had begun. And they are what are now called Braxton Hicks contractions. They're contractions that are felt in the second and the third trimester of pregnancy. So the uterus contracts, which is the body's way of preparing for labor. But the presence of these contractions do not mean that the labor has begun. And that's Jesus' point. The things that will be a part of the signs of the second coming don't mean that the actual events have begun. But they mean that things are being prepared for the appearing of our Lord in the end of the age. Now, from what Jesus has said, notice that there are four birth pains. And the first is found in verses 4 and 5. They're the appearance of false messiahs. Let's read it again. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Now, the great danger, especially in difficult times, is to blindly follow a self-proclaimed Savior. Notice also that these false messiahs come in Jesus' name, and that might mean that they come claiming to be the actual Messiah, or it might also mean that they're coming to save the world in the name of Jesus. Does Jesus predict that a part of the church will be misled? Maybe. Now, if you carefully read your New Testament in chronological order, you're going to find that the later books of the New Testament, like 1st and 2nd Peter, Jude, or the letters of John, they have a very common theme. They're about fighting what is becoming a larger and larger threat to the church, false teaching. But of course, we don't have to wait to get to the end of our New Testament until we see it. How many of Paul's letters also deal with false teachers? I mean, think for instance, how the Pauline epistles also deal with this matter. As but one example, Philippians 3 verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, those who mutilated the flesh, that's a reference to the Judaizers who were insisting that unless a male was circumcised, that male couldn't be saved. And that was leading many astray so that their confidence was in the law and in law keeping rather than in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And this is essential. These false teachers came in my name. That is, they came saying that their teaching was the kind of teaching that Jesus would give. So when Jesus said, they'll come in my name, he means to say, I think, they will come deceiving people into thinking that they're saying something that's in tune with Jesus. And I mention this because in history, some have claimed to be the Messiah, but the number of those Messiah claimants, that's never been a great problem for the church. What has been a problem are false teachers. I think the best way to understand Jesus' words is that the Christ or the Messiah that Jesus speaks of are those who claim to come in Jesus' name, but also claim to be a great Savior. And of those, well, there have been many. I contend that the medieval Roman church was exactly that, aligned with political powers, deeply corrupt, twisting the teachings of Christ, persecuting everyone who disagreed. They claimed they were saving At the very least, they claimed they saved Christendom or perhaps even the whole world. How thankful I am for the Reformation that pointed out this corruption. You know, whether it's a politician or a religious leader or even a pope, false saviors are plenty and they are continuous. The present day climate crisis has left many looking for a savior. 
to have someone come in Jesus' name to save the present hour, that's quite possible. So that's the first birth pain. Let's look at the second. It's found in verses 6 to 8. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, the second section, that's a general description of the state of the earth. Wars will continue until Jesus returns. So will competition between nations, which includes mistrust, hatred. This is going to lead to violence, barbarity, war. Earthquakes and famines are also going to continue. Again, as I've said before, as we read these things, we're not to think that the days after Jesus came were so very much different than the days before he came. See, if I understand this rightly, Jesus is saying, that the cataclysmic events he's speaking about will be a part of this current age all the way until his second coming. He's telling his disciples that he's coming to inaugurate the kingdom of God and he's come to establish his church, but that's not going to take away the suffering that's a part of this sin-cursed earth. It's going to carry on until he comes again. And so number one, Jesus has warned an abundance of false Christ and false teachers will continue to draw people away from the gospel. Then he's promised that the current age of sin and death is going to carry right on, as it has before, right until the close of the age. Thirdly, he promises us that believers will have to suffer in the current age. And in this regard, he promises us that a persecution is going to be our lot all the way until the second coming. Look again at verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, of course, there have been places and times when the gospel has been welcomed and embraced by various cultures at various times. But we should not think that the advance of the gospel will result in worldwide peace. Instead, it will result in persecution, death. The cost of bringing the gospel forward is going to be high, and it it continues to be high today. We won't reach a golden age when enlightened men and women will embrace the cross. Indeed, it will be quite the opposite all the way until the second coming. And fourth, Jesus also promises a great apostasy or a great falling away from the faith, verses 10 to 13. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Please let your mind focus on that very last sentence. The one who endures to the end will be saved. Stop here and take those words in all the seriousness that Jesus placed into them. Following Jesus will require that we remain faithful to either the end of our natural lives or until the actual time of his second coming. If we should be among those who fall away from the faith so that we are no longer a practicing Christian, or if we are in the group that betrays other believers, or if we're in the group that follows false prophets, or if we're in the group that practices lawless living, or lives contrary to the commands of Christ in Scripture, or finally, if we're in the group who no longer loves our Savior, if any of these categories describe us, we're not among those who have endured. And for that reason, we will not be saved in the final hour. My dear listener, please listen to these words. Jesus didn't say, but, you know, if you've, you know, asked Jesus into your life, you know, five to 15 years ago, this doesn't apply to you. No, no. He says, if you don't endure, you won't be saved. You'll need to endure. 
You'll need to persevere in the faith, hold fast to the gospel, continue to love your brothers and sisters in Christ, be loyal to them, obey the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ, remain fervent in the faith, endure. And then finally, fifth, we have one sign that tells us where we are in the prophetic calendar. Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I love to say that this is the ultimate sign of how close we are to the second coming of Jesus. Of course, we can't know how far we are to having accomplished this. You know, the word translated as nations, it's the Greek word ethne, which speaks not of nation states as we know them, but rather of ethnic or people groups. So to what extent will we have accomplished all of this until Jesus comes? Does that mean that all people will have access to the gospel? Does it mean that there will be a church among every people group on earth? Does it mean that the Bible will be translated into every language? Well, the answer is we simply don't know. But we do know that the task of global evangelization is leading us to the end of the age. And so the real issue here is not to speculate how close we are to the end, but to go about the Father's business. Our business is to preach the gospel. Our business is to advance the good news, plant churches, make disciples of every people group on earth. We are never to feel comfortable until all men and women on earth have an opportunity to hear the gospel, respond to the gospel, become a part of the church, and be discipled as to what it is to follow Jesus. Hence, Christ's agenda after the cross and after the resurrection will see the destruction of the temple. That's true. But then things will carry on and evil and wickedness will go on as before. These are the birth pains. And above all, there's the call to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. So stop speculating about the end of the world when the temple is destroyed. Go about your business. Do what Christ has assigned you to do and the end will come. Thanks, John. Uh, Let me ask you, Can you give us a bit more context as to why Jesus would choose to emphasize the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem? Yeah, this is such an important question because the temple in Jerusalem uh, was was a watershed moment. It was the moment when the temple is done away with that emphasizes again that Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice made it unnecessary to have a temple. That is, that temple with its sacrifices is no longer required. And secondly, and this is really important, once the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was defeated, it forced all of the followers of Jesus out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world. It propelled worldwide evangelism. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Do you have young adults in your life, or perhaps you are a young adult and have questions on challenging topics about life and faith? Then be sure to check out In Doubt, the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Each week, In Doubt engages in an interview with a guest who is well-equipped to speak on a given topic faced by many young adults today. Topics such as medical assistance and dying, purity, social media, and parenting for young moms and dads relevant subjects that provide biblical insight. Guests like Andy Steiger, Kyle Eidelman, Sarah Zilstra, and Matt Smethurst have all appeared on the podcast 
to share their expert advice with the young adult audience. So be sure to check it out. Just visit indoubt.ca, download the Indoubt podcast wherever you typically listen, or call 1-800-663-2425 for more information.